Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. I wanted to share with you a cool new website that we've created here at Refalion. It's called Fawn, and it's a hub for discovering Muslim creativity. Muslim Americans are nailing the creative scene right now, whether it's TV, film, books, podcast, music, theater, you name it. We are achieving more representation than seemed possible even 10 years ago. Basically, when I started this podcast a few years ago, I found myself, you know, having a really hard time figuring out where to find information about American Muslim creatives. Like if I wanted to find a new book to read by an American Muslim, you know, Google could only give you so much information. With Fawn, we are showcasing every project done by Muslim authors, musicians, actors, directors, and so much more. Fawn comes from the Arabic word for art. The website is createfawn.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. And you'll find not only a database of projects, but news articles and features and so much more. We even have a newsletter that goes out twice a month so that you can stay up to date on the latest and greatest. As part of this website, we also have a new podcast called Fanboy Friday with Shah Jahan Khan. Many of you already know Shah Jahan, who is a frequent guest on this podcast, and he hosted our award-winning King of the World podcast series. Today, we're going to share with you on our podcast a recent episode of Fanboy Friday with journalist Joanna Boyan. I hope you enjoy. I cover surveillance of marginalized groups, so there's always stories for me to cover, unfortunately. Um, but I just published a follow-up to a big series that I did on immigration surveillance. Hey folks, it's another Fanboy Friday with me, Shah Jahan Khan. This week's guest is Johanna Buya. Johanna's been working as a journalist since 2013 and is currently a senior tech reporter and editor at The Guardian. Before The Guardian, she worked at the Los Angeles Times, Recode, BuzzFeed News, and Politico. You can read an excerpt of our interview on Rafaelian's FON website for Muslim American Creative Projects at createfon.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. More with Johanna Buya and me after a quick break.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. There is this former cattle monitoring company. So yes, they used to monitor cows. Um, that works on behalf of ICE to monitor and surveil almost, I mean, at this point, it might be more than 200,000 migrants in the U.S. Um, and they do that through ankle monitors and facial recognition apps and now a smartwatch because uh, a lot of Democratic uh, administrations want to seem, you know, still tough on immigration, but not tough enough that you're putting people in ankle monitors. It wasn't like, a, oh, they took that same cattle monitor and then turned it in, like just put it on immigrants. So there's but been the you know, principle of it is kind of yeah, the principle of the company, which is like we're very good at monitoring things and and you know livestock, I guess. And so yeah, I just I did a big investigation on them last year, and then the, we just got a hold of a bunch of new public records about the program that answered a lot of the questions that we didn't you know, weren't able to get before because the the company and ICE are both really opaque about things like what do they do with the facial recognition images they collect through the app and to how often are they checking people's location? Um, turns out they're storing that data for up to 75 years, which is, you know, someone's entire lifetime. So yeah, that that story just the follow-up just went up yesterday. I'm and it's a it's a story that uh, you know the investigation I did last year was one that I was really proud of. So well, yesterday's story was kind of just a small follow-up to it. it. It did feel kind of like a victory lap. Like I was like, look at this information that validated a lot of the stuff that I found through my own sources and, and uh, without public records. What's maybe something um, that's a little less well-known? I mean, I guess I would argue that what you just told me is not a super well-known story, but <laughs> what's maybe uh, something more niche that you're just interested in and that you follow? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think, unfortunately, with surveillance, a, a lot of things are niche because people take their privacy for granted. Um, probably one of the more insidious parts of my, you know, the things that I cover is just law enforcement requests and data brokers um, and law enforcement requests through law enforcement requests, government agencies like ICE, um, like your local police or your local sheriff can simply ask Google for all of your information. And that happens quite frequently. Like Google is probably the biggest target because they have so much data on us uh, and they do publish a transparency report. But I think, and I say, I mean, people sort of know this, right? Like they kind of know that like all of their information is being tracked somehow, but then their knowledge and I think concern about what happens with that information starts and ends there. They're like, I know Google is seeing all of this information. And they make jokes about the FBI agent on their phone, like, you know, getting to know them really well. Um, but that supply chain goes much further, right? So like Google can give that information to law enforcement, but not just Google, right? There are other apps that you're using. I remember there was a, a big story a couple of years back where Muslim Pro uh, was sharing information with, uh, or at least was contracting with a uh, government uh, contractor, you know, a, a military government contractor. And so it's so opaque. It's so untransparent. 
And people sort of freely give our data, I mean, myself included, to all of these companies, um, not really, I mean, not in, not in everyone's case, but for many people, not really thinking about what happens next, because, you know, why should it matter? Like, we, literally, it's just the cost of doing business right now, right? Like, you have to give some level of data. And so it's not exactly niche, but I spend so much of my time basically trying to show the real harms that can happen to people through these supply chains and through the sort of like ad tech surveillance model that, you know, and world that we live in, because that's the business model of every company that we interact with right now. What do you remember from publishing your first story or like your first big byline? What was that like? Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was uh, 10 years ago. I wasn't exactly a tech reporter yet. I, I focus squarely on tech now. I was a media reporter, um, which at the time I really, it was just my first job. So I was like, whatever it takes, like I will do whatever job um, I get. Um, and a media reporter, you know, we cover the media. So I was covering companies that I potentially wanted to work at um, or, you know, just some of our competitors. So it was very like inside baseball, kind of navel gazy, not my favorite kind of thing. Like I went into journals, I'm thinking I'm going to be at the front lines of wars. Like I am going to be a foreign correspondent, um, which, you know, I'm still not doing that. And I think they, my parents are probably really happy about that. But I, the biggest story I did at that time, and it was my first big investigation, um, was about a company Oh, geez, I'm actually forgetting the name of the company because it doesn't exist right anymore because that's just like the way media is. Yeah. Uh, and it was this big company that was um, selling, you know, their big their big pitch was that they like scoured the dark web for stories. Like that was their big, uh, you know, like this is the thing that sets us apart. That we're better than Vice. We're better than BuzzFeed. I remember interviewing the CEO and he was just like, what's Vice? <laughs> That's like, okay, let's let's not pretend. But I got a, I just started getting a bunch of anonymous documents sent to me, mailed to me, um, to my office with all of this information that showed like, it, there's no dark web like secret sauce that they were using. They were just like doing like really deep Google searches. <laughs> um, but there was like quite a bit of other, like they were just like, here is how they came up with story ideas. Cause that was their whole thing. We come up with story ideas through this like software that like scours the dark web. Funnily enough, it really ties to what I do now because that's a lot of the same pitch that surveillance companies will make for police. Like we scour the dark web to like find connections and nobody else can find. And it's just all snake oil because it's, they're just Google searching. It's, we all, we all do it. Um, so that was, yeah, I remember getting all this like stack of documents from like an anonymous source, the name. It was also very like deep throat, like he had like a weird name. I'm assuming it's a guy and that's probably not fair. It might have been a woman, um, but it had like sort of an anon, like some some like pseudonym that was very cartoonish. And I was, it was so exciting. Like it was exactly why I wanted to be a journalist. I'm like, I am getting freaking stacks of documents sent to me. Like, I don't know who is sending it to me. And it wasn't like the most insidious thing in the world. Like the company and its owners had some ties to like, they, they had some, there was a, some more nefarious side mm -hmm. of the uh, story and like of the company itself. But like really the crux of it, it was like this entire thing is BS. Um, it was just, it was just really exciting. Like it was my biggest story. I then, like, in the middle of that story, got recruited to go work at BuzzFeed. And so I, it was my final story. I published it, like, the day before I joined the other company, which was a little bit complicated. But 
it still felt very much like a victory. How would you say that the industry has changed uh, from when you first started? Well, for one, many of the companies that I once worked at no longer exist. Um, so I used to work at BuzzFeed News. That okay. is. No Did you know Emma? Emma Dali Akbar. Yeah, yeah he's a very, very, very close friend. friend. Close oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I was just texting with him the other day. Yeah, Emma is yeah. a good friend of mine. Um, we overlapped toward the tail end of my being there. Um, we actually had started a, a like an internal, I don't even know, listserv called Halal Feed, which <laughs> initially was like um, basically a way for us to get people to stop po publishing videos and like stories that were really silly when it came to Muslims, like just like poorly thought out, like sometimes very offensive things. Um, and then, but it also was like a way for the Muslims in the newsroom to like actually talk to each other and, and be friends. Um, but yeah, so a lot of the companies I used to work at don't exist. So I used to work at BuzzFeed News and then I worked at a smaller tech publication called Recode, um, you know, which at the time, like it was such a big deal. Like it was such a big deal. Kara Swisher started it. She left the Wall Street Journal to start it. Um, it was like, we kind of thought of ourselves as like SEAL Team 6 of like tech reporters. Like we were like the special unit. Um, but, you know, th these things kind of just happen. Um, this when I joined, it felt like we were or when I started as a reporter in 2013, it felt like media was on like an upturn. There were like a bunch of new companies popping up. Venture capital money was being poured into the industry. Um, a lot of individual sort of star reporters, marquee reporters like Kara Swisher, uh, Nate Silver, like a lot of folks like that, Ezra Klein, left traditional media to start these, you know, like digital media publications that were really centered around who they were and what they did in their particular brand of journalism. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of an exciting time. People were getting started to get paid like a livable wage. <laughs> and I hadn't yet gotten to that point at that, like when I first started, but you know, money was coming in. Today, it's like, you know, we're always waiting to hear what media company is going to lay people off. You know, WNYC literally yesterday uh, said that they were going to lay a bunch of people off. So it feels much more precarious than it did when I started. That being said, when I started, it was very much a peak and it had just, they were just coming out of the valley too, right? So this is like, this happens to media in waves, like it keeps happening. You know, there's like leading into when I started, that was like when digital media companies first started becoming a real thing. Um, so it's, I think, pulled the industry out of that sort of funk, that post-recession. But we're, we're facing new threats to our business model and new, I mean, new threats, but also just like new tests of our business model that prove kind of once again that advertising as a as sort of our main revenue stream is just not viable. Um, so yeah, it's it's a little bit more precarious and unstable at this point, which I'm sure like young journalists who are listening to this are not excited about hearing. What's your daily routine as a journalist? My daily routine as a journalist, um, I'm not going to pretend that I don't sit on my bed and go <laughs> to my phone. <laughs> like okay. I go to my phone, I go through Twitter. I like go through my email. Um, I will often just like before I get up, shoot a couple of emails out, answer people really quickly. Um, and then, you know, just figure out if there's anything that I need to be focusing on. Um, and then everything else is sort of case by case, depending on whether or not I'm working on a bigger story. 
I'll sort of just like spend my time digging into that story a little bit more, which could mean I'm looking for more sources. So I use LinkedIn quite a bit. I like kind of cold email a lot of people through LinkedIn um, or I set up calls or email people or whatever it is. Um, I have basically until noon to myself because I, while I'm based on the East Coast, my team is on the West Coast. And I actually just moved back from San Francisco a couple of years ago. Um, so I don't need to talk to anyone until 12, 15, usually. Um, so I have until 12, 15 to do like, you know, the work on my stories that I'm probably not going to be able to after that. And like, you know, just kind of spend my my time reporting things out. After 12.15, we have our morning meeting and I usually, you know, more often than not, we'll get assigned some sort of daily story or like some story to do for the next couple of days, depending on what's going on in the news. So like yesterday, I spent most of my day, our post are like, for me, it's an afternoon meeting, I'm just working on the Amazon FTC news that FTC just filed its big antitrust um, lawsuit against Amazon. So it really depends it's case by case. These days I'm pregnant, so I'm, everything is slower. Oh, well, congrats. Thank you. I'm um, just like moving much more slowly and kind of ambling my way through the day. So yeah, it, it, it kind of depends. What are some of like the most important skills that you think a good journalist ought to have? Um, curiosity, so important. Like if you are not curious, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. And I think a lot of people get that wrong. They think that they need to be like the authority on the topic that they cover. Some reporters and journalists think they need to be authorities on every single topic. That's just, it just doesn't make sense. Our job is to ask questions. Uh, and in fact, I don't, it doesn't help me to be the smartest person in the room. Like I want to be in a room where like there are people there who couldn't give me information and who know more about a topic than I do. Um, so curiosity is so, so important. And then the second skill is like actually being able to listen to someone and like hear someone and not, you know, be like sort of pushing to hear the sound of your own voice. Like I, I it's, it's kind of ironic I'm saying that because I'm doing a podcast right now just about myself. No, no, I, I <laughs> um, but, but truly like in conversations. And again, I think part of this is like a little bit of like, I need to prove to this person that I'm interviewing that I have good questions, that I'm you know knowledgeable about this. And sure, absolutely. But the thing that you can do that will actually help you and will probably help the source tell you more is just to listen, like listen really carefully and repeat back what you're saying to them. So I think those two things are the most important skills because you can get better at writing and you can get better at interviewing people. Also just like sort of, you know, being able to distinguish like what's a story and what's not a story, which can you know, vary so drastically between what people's beats are and things like that. Um, my beat is really, really specific for a very, very specific reason. You know, I cover surveillance of marginalized groups there are other surveillance reporters out there who don't have that specific of a focus. And they cover kind of like, you know, they do great jobs. I mean, they're like amazing reporters. Um, but I want to, I was really deliberate about that because I want to focus on and sort of highlight a lot of the people from vulnerable backgrounds who are being harmed by these systems. Um, and obviously, as a as a Muslim American who lived in New York when, you know, like during 9-11, pre-9-11 and then post-9-11, um, a lot of those stories are like quite important to me because I've seen the impact that, you know, it has had on 
people who, do, who often don't have like a safety net or a support system or like political capital to push back against these systems. Last question. Um, who are other like Muslim identifying journalists that you admire? Mm, um, I feel like if you asked any reporter this, they've all said Rowayda Abdulaziz. Like she's, you know, incredible. One of my I have favorite reporters. She actually interviewed my dad for something. And I, my dad's not allowed to talk to reporters because I refuse to allow anyone to talk to reporters in my family. Um, but he asked me if she was trustworthy. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's like literally the only journalist that I would trust you to speak with. Um, yeah, Malika Bilal is she's an incredible journalist. Um, I mean, and she's just like such an inspiration um, and does, you know, really amazing, thorough reporting, which... I, it's so silly, but I feel like I, the questions that I got a lot when I first started was like, how are you going to be a reporter when you're a hijabi? And I'm like, trust me, the last thing I need, anyone needs to worry about is me being meek in a corner and like not being able to like, you know, push my words out there. I'm very talkative and loud. We're good on that. Um, and then I have, you know, other re reporter friends and colleagues who are Muslim who I think are incredible. You mentioned Ahmed Ali Akbar is actually an amazing food writer. Mm -hmm. He does so much justice to like South Asian culture and, you know, really takes time to think about those stories so deeply. Um, my former colleagues at the LA Times, Suhana Hussein, is also an incredible reporter. She does um, really deep looks at labor, again, with like a very... Um, clear focus on accountability and just human stories, right? Like you can write a labor story that's like unions are mad, but like, how is it actually harming the people? You know, there are a lot of people, like, people who don't do that. And Sohana does that really well. Fanboy Friday is a production of Rafaelion Media. It's hosted by me, Shah Jahan Khan, and produced and edited by Ari Mathay. Our theme music was composed by me with help from Nick Zampiello at New Alliance Mastering, and features my good friend and longtime musical co-conspirator, Tanya Pollitt, on vocals. Please follow today's guest, Johanna Buya, on Twitter or X at J-M-B-O-O-Y-A-H. And read more about her and lots of other cool stuff by American Muslim creatives by subscribing now to createfon.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. Thanks so much. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 